is in the world of what would become the alt-right is they are electrified. And they are electrified because suddenly, at the level of presidential politics in the USA, somebody is talking their language. So the experience, the decades-long political experience of being marginalized, of being the fringe, has suddenly changed. Somebody who is running for president is talking about immigrants the way they talk about them. Hi, and welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Maxwell Ward, and in this podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Lawrence Rosenthal, the chair at the Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies, about how alt-right nationalism entered the mainstream in US politics. But first things first, I wanted to know, what exactly are the alt-right? The alt-right represents what has long been called in the USA the fringe of American politics. And what made them the fringe, or the very definition of the fringe, is that they are outside of the mainstream and do not have particularly a role in national politics. And those kinds, the kinds of ideology that we're talking about are things that have characterized the Ku Klux Klan in this country and neo-Nazi organizations in this country. And they have not had a role in American politics nationally since the 1920s and 1930s. But they continued to exist, and they existed in atomized corners. There would be groups in rural Ohio or rural Michigan. Or, you know, there would be numbers of them. But comes the Internet age and, uh, and above all, social media, they networked. So that's step one, is these guys networked. Two, there were events that made these people come together beyond simply politics. And that has to do with what is better understood as culture. Above all, there was, for example, a thing called Gamergate. To some extent, the base of the alt-right online consists of what used to be called in social science alienated young men. And they were gamers online. And a controversy arose around the place of, of women in the gamer world. And it provoked an immense uh, backlash against feminism itself and, and very anti-women. And that kind of consolidated this element of what would constitute the alt-right, which Donald Trump famously said, well, these online things aren't necessarily from Russia. They could have been from some 400-pound kid lying on his mother's bed somewhere. The point being that there are these kind of uh, unhappy young men who are engaged more culturally than politically. And so you get the rise of this essentially nihilistic internet culture in which things like Pepe the Frog become symbolic. And there's a vast uh, array of these symbols. 
And basically the thrill of it is it's edgy and it's anti-establishment and it's anti-all establishments, left, right, etc. Okay, so you have that. You have those guys, the alienated young men, and you have the formerly atomized neo-Nazi and KKK groups who have discovered social media and are now not atomized anymore, but are a social network or, or networking on social media. And then finally, you get step three, which is the candidacy of Donald Trump. And what happens in the world of what would become the alt-right is they are electrified. And they are electrified because suddenly, at the level of presidential politics in the USA, somebody is talking their language. So the experience, the decades-long political experience of being marginalized, of being the fringe, has suddenly changed. Somebody who is running for president is talking about immigrants the way they talk about them, that whose who's very, very premise of his campaign is anti-Mexican, anti-Muslim, anti-feminist. Well, let me be clear about that. Anti-quote-unquote political correctness. And Donald Trump would say things like, the biggest problem in this country is political correctness. And that, above all, had two constituent elements for the alt-right. One was feminism and the other was multiculturalism, both of which seem forced down their throats by elites, and in, in these two in particular, the liberal elites. Donald Trump was like a siren call from the thoroughly unexpected province of not only national politics, but presidential politics. So the alt-right became a mobilized and, and a participant in the election of 2016 in a way that that kind of ideological warrior had not participated in American elections, again, since the 1920s or 1930s. You talk about these sort of disparate groups that have come together. Would you say that apart from that kind of combative element, that there are some, there is a thread, some sort of key beliefs that yes. they share. Uh, the key belief is the center of their politics is white identity. They are self-conscious of what is has gone by the name of identity politics in this country, which is to say the politics of groups like women, like blacks, like Hispanics, like gay people, increasingly transsexuals, etc. That's understood as identity politics. Their premise is, well, this is the identity politics of white people, or European people, or European men. And you get variations on that. One is white separatism, white supremacy, or white nationalism. But in the center of the consciousness 
of the alt-right is um, we are white and, and we are being displaced. If you think about probably the most prominent manifestation of alt-right politics in this country was uh, Charlottesville in Virginia, where there was a quote-unquote unite the right rally. And in the evening on the University of Virginia campus, University of Virginia is a, a, a venerable institution in this country, which was founded by Thomas Jefferson. And they marched through with torches, which were kind of tiki torches. But what are you going to do? You know, it's, it's, uh, this is not an easy country to find several hundred torches available. And they, um, they chanted. And some of the chants were old Nazi chants, like blood and soil which is a remarkable thing to chant in the USA, where the country has developed through immigration. It's not as though blood and soil, which is, which is about, uh, which is to conjure up the kinds of racial tropes of the, of the Nazis, which says, we are the people who, 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 who were born here on this soil, blood and soil. It's kind of an irrational thing in the USA. Okay, that's one. Another was Jews will not replace us. So one of the elements in uh, the alt-right has been the rise of political anti-Semitism in a way that has been completely out of bounds in the USA, uh, you know, in my lifetime. And I'm no spring chicken. So perhaps the most revealing of the chants was simply, you will not replace us. That chant goes to the heart of what uh, the white nationalism of the alt-right was about and is about. It is the conviction that white America is being displaced and it's being displaced by newcomers and they are largely people of color, and that traditions are being displaced so that the premise of the Unite the Right rally was about replacing statues or defending statues that uh, celebrate Civil War heroes in the USA. This was in particular about Robert E. Lee, who was the um, chief general of the American Confederacy. So if you take seriously, and I do, that, that chant, you will not replace us. It is the depth of what white nationalist identity politics is about. Using the word identity politics, you have to understand that this is a different kind of identity politics than black identity politics, female identity politics, Hispanic, et cetera, gay, whatever. If you, the simplest way I know to explain that is those sorts of, let's call them classical identity politics, women, black, et cetera, et cetera, is essentially a politics which is arguing we do not have a seat at the table and 
our politics is about demanding a seat at the table. White identity politics is we are being cast out of the table. Other people are taking our place. The first one is about being deprived of rights and being deprived of justice. The other is about a sense of being dispossessed from what you have. While white identity links the alt-right together, a populist fury at the political elite fueled Donald Trump's election campaign. I asked Dr. Rosenthal to explain how important economic issues had been in that and in the alt-right's rise to prominence. People tend to divide up about whether they explain it from the cultural point of view or whether they explain it from the economic point of view. And basically those two things went hand in hand and they are both true. The American economy has become deindustrialized. that the kinds of expectations that white, non-college educated males above all uh, the kinds of expectations that the generations of their fathers and their fathers' fathers before them, um, which were had to do with, let's just, you know, we're talking in stereotypes here, but the availability of reasonably well-paying jobs in things like factories have gone away. And the, and the cities that, um, and towns that characterize those places have become well characterized as the Rust Belt in America. And so what are their life expectations? Their life expectations are things like you know, being security guards in Walmarts, you know, or unemployment, really. Um, they're, they're poorly paid jobs which are um, a step down from what their fathers and their fathers' fathers had had. And so you get a kind of deterioration of life chances among a big portion of the American white working class. And you get enormous dysfunction along with that. This dysfunction is characterized by things like diminished lifespans. The actual lifespans uh, uh, have uh, gone down among this class of people. And perhaps even more notable is the rise of drug addiction, uh, above all heroin and opioids. Okay, so so you have the dis, the dislocation, the end of the industrial system to the extent to which there is manufacturing in this country, and there is. Uh, it tends to be computer driven at this point. So you need to be educated even to work in the factories these days. Uh, what happens to those people from about 1973? to 2008, the dispossession of the American working class was like a wave that was rolling in very slowly. It broke, the wave broke with 2008, with the financial crisis. And the last thing that broke was that the housing market collapsed in this country. 
which meant that the way in which a lot of people in this world had been um, sustaining themselves was, well, we have this house and, you know, yesterday it was worth $100,000 and look at this, today it's worth $150,000. We're going to refinance it. We'll get that $50,000, we'll put it in our pockets and we wait for, the, for it to turn to $200,000 and then we'll, 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 we'll re, renegotiate the mortgage again. So that there was a kind of buffer, and that buffer went away in 2008. Donald Trump may have been a catalyst for the alt-right's growth, but what do key figures in the movement, like Richard Spencer, the person credited with creating the term alt-right, really think of the president? Well, people like Spencer for you know we're now talking about ideologically committed leadership of the alt-right. For them, um, Trump was a vehicle more than what their ultimate goal was. He put them on the map because they coincided around immigrants, around um, political correctness, et cetera, et cetera, which we talked about. But there is no expectation that um, he was going to be the historic leader, um, which would lead to um, a white nationalist triumph in this country. Steve Bannon, who went to the White House and was the, it was a strange phrase, CEO of Donald Trump's electoral campaign in its last two, two and a half months. There are things that, Bannon liked about Trump and things where they didn't match. For example, the great triumph of the Republicans in power, which the Republican Party and people like Paul Ryan, <laughs> the late speaker uh, of, the, of the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, would talk about was tax cuts. That they, they That is the single noteworthy legislative achievement. Um, it's a very regressive tax package. And what it did, for example, was reduce the top rates for income earners from 39 to 35% in this country. Steve Bannon wanted the rate to go up. He wanted to go from 39 to 44%. So alt-right politics at the level of the economy was not in lockstep with um, the Trump administration. The Trump economic advisors were very much along the lines of this kind of free market conservatism as opposed to what Steve Bannon used to call populist nationalism or economic nationalism. Where that economic nationalism has sustained itself so far in, in the Trump administration is around trade. So, you know, people like Peter Navarro, who is a kind of one-off economist, there were not a lot of economists in this country like Peter Navarro, he and a guy called Steve Miller are running are running the um, 
essentially the the trade and immigration policies in the Trump administration. And those are good from the point of view of the alt-right. The kinds of things around taxes and the presence of so many people, so many uh, veterans of things like Goldman Sachs in this country do not follow from the projected policies of the alt-right. You've talked quite a bit about the differences already, but I'm quite intrigued by what the alt-right vision would be for America versus a more traditional Republican vision for America as it stands right now. The outstanding things are economic and the, the Republican Party, the Republican establishment has long been free trade. That, that, would, be, that would change. Um, foreign policy based on, uh, let's call it the settlements emerging from World War II, things like the United Nations, the uh, European Union, trade agreements, international trade agreements, which the Republican Party has always stood for, um, the, that would go. The Republican Party has been very much against the welfare state in this country. Things like the strongest advocates of quote-unquote free market uh, economics in the Republican Party really aim at getting rid of things like um, Social Security and Medicare. Social Security goes back to the 1930s in this country. The alt-right, the rank-and-file, that's not particularly interesting to them. So that's another place in which economically they're very different than orthodox republicanism and even kind of extreme free market conservatism, the kinds of politics that, that are associated these days with the Koch brothers who are, who are uh, big finance, financiers of right-wing politics, but it's a very different right-wing politics. And then on foreign policy, uh, no, no entanglements, not particularly interested in America being the policeman of the world, regarding things like the United Nations as assaults on American sovereignty. So on foreign policy grounds and economic grounds, they're very different. On the cultural issues, they take Republican orthodoxy and take it to an extreme. So, and it's, and it's a racial extreme, uh, which the Republican Party has been at pains to have at least deniability on, on race questions, that their, that their politics are racial. One can argue that their, their politics have had racial bias um, threaded through them for decades. But in terms of the rhetoric, you, you will not get, you will not get, um, you know, there was a, a, the head of the Republicans in the Senate for many years, who was a guy called Trent Lott from Mississippi. And he lost his leadership 
because he talked about the, uh, and this was with respect to an old senator from the segregation days, a guy called Strom Thurmond, who, who was in the Senate till he was about 100. And when he died, um, Trent Lott said things like, well, if we had listened to Strom Thurmond, we wouldn't be here today. And that was enough to get him bounced from his leadership. Contrast that to the um, uh, explicit white politics of the alt-right. And, you know, you have a difference. And, and many would argue um, that, that the Republican Party is, uh, you know, there's a mask over the racism. But at least there was a mask. And, and there is no more mask. If Trump failed to deliver on some of those key ideals that you've mentioned, is there a plausible liberal democratic campaign that could be run that could appeal to these fringe groups, do you believe? You raise the question of what happens when it turns out that Donald Trump does not bring the jobs back and that, for example... Obamacare gave them something which, which now is being taken away. What happens when those scales come down? One is, does the cultural half of support for Donald Trump, is that sufficient? So one bellwether of that is the astounding continued support of American evangelical Christians for Donald Trump, for the guy, the pussy grabber, the, the, you know, the Stormy Daniels guy. He doesn't lose support among evangelical Christians who have been a significant force in American politics for at least since the 1990s. And their politics, in part, is holier than thou. Democrats are, are, are um, you know, libertines and, and so forth. And, and here you've got Donald Trump, and there have been almost theological explanations of this is who God delivered to, to take us to the promised land. Sometimes God sends the strangest messengers, you know, so you get kinds of things like that. The point being that what happens when the rank and file, let us say, of the alt-right says, you know, we're not getting what, what this guy wanted to give us. It's not a given that they're going to abandon Trump as the evangelicals who's very premises of their politics for, for you know, going back to the uh, evolution trials, the scopes trials of the 20s, their response is to find a way to continue to accommodate Trump in spite of his transgressions. So you're asking the kind of, of um, wonderful you know, sort of fantastical ideal of, of the democratic left, of the left of the democratic party, that um, 
a version of left-wing populism, a la Bernie Sanders, will be the, uh, the thing that will appeal to these people once they've been disillusioned by Trump politics. And to that, I say, well, maybe. You know, there, there is nothing, I don't see any basis on which to say that's what's going to happen. It is plausible. There's no doubt that it's plausible. It's, it would be, it would be a change in the sense of moving from a kind of expressive politics on the part of the alt-right that we're getting to say up yours to every establishment and the extent to which that's what's moving them to a more interest-based, rational-based politics. And that might happen, but we know very well that the expressive politics has an enormous power. And that's what happened in 2016. So um, can there be that transformation? Sure, it's possible. What would have to happen in order for that to, to take place would be, I assume more than anything else, uh, a combination of democratic organizing at the very lowest levels of, of, you know, what we call the grassroots here. Things like school boards, running for school boards, running, running for local judgeships and things like that, and winning at that level. And at the national level, the emergence of a leader who can capture the imagination of these people which Hillary Clinton most certainly was not. Are there any things that you think American politics has learnt or anything that looking forward we could predict about the alt-right? The alt-right isn't doing well. Post-Charlottesville, um, it, it has, it has uh, run, run aground. And... To some extent, what that suggests is the racial quality of alt-right politics. The spectacle of Charlottesville has alienated a great deal of the American population. Uh, also, the idea that it was called the Unite the Right rally. And it also had this quality of, let's call it the militias of the various groups that came together. And in part, it was about uniting the militias. And that has all fallen apart. That didn't work. There was a hope that, and the strategy of the alt-right was there would be fighting, in effect, fighting on the streets in, in, in the U.S. And that, that image, which is taken from uh, the 20s and 30s and, and, and Weimar and things of that nature, explicitly on the part of people like Richard Spencer. I'm not putting those words in his mouth. Those are his words. That hasn't 
panned out as they thought it would. So um, where, what might resurrect their fortunes depends on racial politics in this country. It also depends on things like war, declaring a, a, a new national enemy and, and going to war, which would, which would energize these people and so forth. But I would say that the hard alt-right alternative has run aground. Whether the sort of Steve Bannon-based alt-right, what he calls populist nationalism, which basically his strategy is the uh, electoral coalition that succeeded in the Trump 2016 election, that it become a kind of permanent uh, electoral force in American politics, the successor to the American Tea Party, and uh, whether he succeeds at holding that together, and, and he perceives himself as the leader of that, that's also running into, into, into hard times, based on things like how the Democratic Party has uh, performed in all the elections since uh, November of 2016. And the elections of November of 2018, which are called the midterms in this country. And every member of the House of Representatives has to run every two years. And a large number of, of senators will be elected in, 20, in 2018 this year. If there is a strong democratic wave, that will be a significant defeat for things like Steve Bannon politics and alt-right politics. Could it be the end of the alt-right, do you think? Alt-right is never going to go away. Think about the fact that KKK, neo-Nazi politics, have managed to exist and, and be passed down for decades in, in an atomized way. So the, the uh, glory of 2016 might go away. Uh, might diminish, but the alt-right is not going away. The real question is, does it go away from the mainstream? Does it cease to be, does it cease to be a force in national elections? And that's, for it to go away is going to be difficult because it has established itself in, in media. It has established itself in things like Breitbart News. It has established itself in a number of television, internet, radio, etc. Because of that, we will never return to pre-2016. The alt-right will continue in its dedicated media.